I do think that we're going to have giant applications with hundreds of millions of users, and all the applications people have been talking about as ideas for the past 10 years are going to be reality in the next 10 years. Ryan X. Charles is my first guest in this new series of CoinGeek Conversations. He's an American technologist and entrepreneur working in Silicon Valley. Like all the best tech leaders, he abandoned his studies, a PhD in physics, when he saw an opportunity that just couldn't wait. That was Bitcoin five years ago. Since then, he's co-founded Yours.org, which lets people earn cryptocurrency for creating content, and now MoneyButton, a micropayment system. I'm Charles Miller, and in these podcasts, I'll be talking to leading figures in the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain and asking them to explain things for those of us without technical backgrounds. I began by asking Ryan how he can get people to use cryptocurrency for the first time when they see the Money Button logo on a website. Okay, so let me first explain some context. I mean, the, the idea is we're familiar with onboarding flows. Like if you're a normal user, you might not think about it. But if you're building a company that does something like this, you think about these things. When you sign up for something like Instagram, Instagram has somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion users, and they're still growing rapidly. Instagram has an onboarding problem. They need to be able to onboard people to Instagram. And that basically means, how do they get it? And the way most people get Instagram is they basically download the app from the App Store. They sign up. They are taken through a flow that involves basically following a few people and posting an image. And you can actually do all this in about one minute. Now, in the cryptocurrency world, our problem is, how do people actually get cryptocurrency so that they can use it? That's the onboarding problem of cryptocurrency. And in the cryptocurrency world, for various reasons, it is extremely difficult and time-consuming to acquire cryptocurrency. For most people in most countries, it takes about a week, and you have to be pretty dedicated to actually do it. So it, you can't replicate the experience of Instagram. So this is what I call the onboarding problem, right? We need to reduce the difficulty of acquiring and using cryptocurrency down to it needs to take about a minute. It needs to be that easy and that fast that you can onboard in one minute. So that's the problem we're trying to solve. And what I've done is, over the past several months, basically talk with people and do a bit of research and try to figure out every conceivable way that we can onboard people. And there are ways that we're going to be able to do this. So we can do things like work in markets where it's already easier for people to onboard. So to give you an example of this, there is an exchange in Mexico called Bitso that has an onboarding flow for their customers where they can onboard new users and acquire cryptocurrency in about seven minutes. Seven minutes is a lot better than seven days like it is for most people in most places. So what we can do as a company is we can start with Mexico. What we do is we basically partner with companies in Mexico to use MoneyButton. There are also lots and lots of other completely different tactics like using referral systems, using gifting systems, allowing people to borrow it, and ultimately using every trick in the book to allow people to easily acquire cryptocurrency. So, But if I want to sign up to MoneyButton, what, what, what information and what sort of financial disclosure would be required of me? Do I need to give a credit card number? So right now on MoneyButton, we don't require anything like that. However, in order to actually acquire cryptocurrency, you're going to have to give that information to somebody, usually. So if you want to buy it, you probably are going to have to sign up at an exchange. And signing up at an exchange involves usually 
giving your, your full name and address and a scan of your passport as well as a, a photo from your webcam. So they really are very invasive. Like, you have to give a lot of information. We don't require that, but the exchanges require that. And the reason why the exchanges require that is long and complicated, but it has a lot to do with the way the traditional financial system works. You can't just say, okay, if you want to do this, give us your credit card number. How much money do you want to convert into crypto? Unfortunately, so you can do that for some people. So Coinbase has a wonderful product called uh, the credit card widget. And uh, what they let you do is uh, you can plug a widget into another app that lets people buy cryptocurrency by typing in their credit card information. Unfortunately, this just doesn't work for most people for a lot of reasons. Uh, But it's very difficult for Coinbase to interact with the traditional financial system. A lot of banks actually block cryptocurrency purchases. So what actually happens for most people when they try to do this, you type in your credit card information, and it says error. It just doesn't work. And they can't even tell you why. It just says, we just can't process this transaction. So it's a horrible user experience for about 90% of people who have credit cards. The remaining 10% who are lucky, it'll work. But that's how bad it is. Like, it just doesn't work because the banks don't want you to buy cryptocurrency with a credit card. So they block it. So how do you get around that? You just have to try everything else. Ultimately, I think the best answer here is to focus on mechanisms that don't require interacting with a traditional financial system at all. The best way to onboard is actually to earn cryptocurrency. You do something of value and somebody pays it to you. That's it. But then you need lots of people who have it in order to pay people like that. So one of the markets we're considering, this is an unusual market, but it's true. We're actually looking at people that are one hop away from people who have crypto. Because if you have the ability to do something of value for someone who has cryptocurrency, they can pay you with crypto. And we can onboard the world one step at a time. In fact, if you recognize that you're only a few hops away, actually, from just about everyone else on the planet, right? something like there's a famous uh, seven hops from Kevin Bacon or whatever it is, um, you, you, don't, you only have to do that a few times, and you can actually onboard the whole world. The trick is building products that actually make it work so that somebody actually can do something of value, like writing an article, for instance. And you got to actually pair them up with someone that can pay them with crypto. It's not easy to do this. But I believe if we, if we can do that, this will actually work and will actually allow us to onboard the entire world. And it's actually ultimately going to be simpler than trying to onboard everybody via their local exchange. But is there something that is less sort of esoteric than being paid to write an article, for instance, that sure. your average person can very well, easily do? Well, almost everybody does something, right? I mean, people work. So most people in the world who are an adult person are doing something of value right now, and they're being paid for it. They're just not being paid in crypto. So yes, it doesn't have to be write an article. It can be literally anything. Just to give you an example, um, uh, a low-value thing you can do, but something that would work for everyone, is something like Amazon Turk, where you pair up companies that need to do something that only humans could do, and they need a lot of humans to work on it. So Amazon Turk will pair these companies with the people that do the work. And something like that could be very effective. So you could imagine clicking money button on a newspaper. And we say, okay, sorry, your credit card doesn't work. But why don't you spend the next 15 minutes categorizing images and you can earn cryptocurrency? Now, no one really wants to do that, but anyone can. So it is a way that you could onboard people. Now, you're not going to earn a whole lot of money by categorizing images. 
it's better if you do something more valuable, right? That's why writing a, a, an important article is actually probably better than categorizing images. Money Button is actually not just about paying money. It's a whole bunch of services that could yes. be built on that system. It seems like Money Button is almost too limiting a name for it now. Yes. Well, it's called Money Button because it's named after the Facebook Like Button. But it, the Facebook Like Button is far more primitive than Money Button is. The Facebook Like Button does not have the advanced API that we have. So you can do all sorts of things with Money Button that literally don't even exist any other way right now. So doing things like... Um, it's not just about accepting payments. So you can add Money Button to a website and start earning money because people can buy something from you. But it's not just about that. Your users can actually pay other users. So you can build an app, like I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, I like the idea of building actually a new type of newspaper where the newspaper doesn't actually hire anybody directly. Rather, anybody can be a journalist, an editor, scout. And what you do is the user is simply register for the platform, a modern newspaper, whatever you call it, whatever you want to, the Internet Times or something. And citizen journalism, but not just where the users write the article and earn money. You actually have all of the different roles you need to actually do a good, high-quality job of creating real journalism. And you can distribute payments, however. So you could do things like, you know, the author of the article gets 50%. The editor gets 30%. The scout gets 20%. The, the, and the company gets 10%, for instance. You can monetize using a paywall or countless other techniques. So one of the ways to monetize content is by giving somebody a bad version of it. So if you could see a blurry image, and gosh, you really want to see that image clearly, but in order to see it clearly, you have to pay. You'll pay. Now, some people may not pay, But whatever, many people will. A lot of people walk into a store and don't buy anything, too. But some people, where it's actually worth it for them to pay that price, will pay for it. So you can monetize images that way. We're really interested in these completely new things that will overturn a lot of traditional uh, industries. Is the general trend of what you're talking about monetizing things that either don't exist or are free online at the moment? So we're not, we have zero interest in things that are free because things that are free are really ads usually. So I don't mean to be too critical of them, but, but Medium, for example, Medium is a, is a website where you can write articles for free. The reality of almost all of the content on Medium is that almost everything is some kind of ad. What people use Medium for is I've got some cool things that I want to share to the world for free because I simply want as many people to know it as possible. That's fine if that's what you want to do. That is not the type of content we're interested in. The type of content we're interested in is stuff that's actually worth money that people are willing to pay for. So an example of that would be market research. You don't actually spend six months of your life researching something only to give it away for free. But aren't we getting back to when newspapers first went online, they thought they could sell subscriptions. Yes. And that didn't go very well. well Some people, it's sort of moving back in that direction now. But. Well, newspapers are moving in the direction of, new, of subscriptions right now because the reality of ads is uh, the only two companies that are able to use ads successfully are Google and Facebook, and that's because they have so much data on so many users that they can deliver targeted ads. And so the advertising industry... The, the ads are just way worse on any other platform. Newspapers and almost any other anybody else doesn't use it; just doesn't work very well. But the well. user has learned that they're basically getting stuff for free. Uh, yes, but but you know it's also low quality. So you see things like you know clickbait. Like I see this all the time on many websites. I mean, like this isn't high quality. 
uh, people pay for stuff all the time. Like again, like forget about that stuff. Right? We're not going to monetize clickbait. Clickbait is a solved problem. If you want to see free trash, it already exists and it's monetized by ads. We're not looking at that at all. We're looking at stuff that's worth money. And but to rope it back into the subscription thing, um, subscriptions are fine. It's one way to solve the problem, but it's one of a, it's one way in a giant world of possibilities where the real reason why they're doing subscriptions is because that's really the only way to do it with a traditional payment system. You couldn't do micropayments until Bitcoin. You couldn't just do a 10 cent, 25 cent, $1 payment until Bitcoin. With Bitcoin SV, we can do that. Bitcoin Core, it's a long story. You can't really do it with some of the cryptocurrencies. But with Bitcoin SV, you can actually do that right now with Money Button today. So we open up new ways to monetize stuff that are bigger in scope than subscriptions. This is not about signing up for the New York Times and paying a monthly subscription. This is about visiting a new publication for the first time and not signing up for a monthly subscription. Because you don't know who these people are. You may never come back to this website again. What you can do is you can buy one article one time for $1 or less, whatever it is, and you may never come back again. But you get the one piece of content that you're actually interested in. And that's not something you can do with subscriptions. Just going back to the basic mechanics of it, how, when I'm looking at all sorts of websites, and they've all got money button on them, how does money button know who I am when I press it, or do I have to sign in? So we currently we require sign-in. Uh, we are actually going to make it so that you don't have to sign in to use it. But in order to get all the benefits of money button, you do want to sign in because you... And do you stay signed in on the browser or something yes. so that whatever you, you do on that browser... You stay everywhere. So that once you sign in to money button, every website that uses money button, you can use money button on those websites without having to sign in again. So money button actually is the single sign-on thing that you really want. But isn't there a, a, a bit of a problem with... So therefore, your browser is sitting there, and anybody who uses it can, at a press of a button, spend some of your money. Money button is secure in the sense that only you can actually swipe the button. And there well, are, only you, the person using your laptop at that time. Well, sure. I guess if you gave your laptop to someone, uh, that's true. Good point. So we, we don't have this right now, but there are lots of ways we can resolve that problem. So we can do things like, basically, if it's a large payment, we could, we could cap the amount of money. So if someone did steal your laptop... They can only spend up to a certain amount before having two-factor auth. Or if you're very paranoid, maybe every payment requires two-factor auth. In other words, you swipe the button on your laptop, but then your phone says, Do you, are you sure? Do you really want to make the payment? Yes or no? Yes. So there are ways we can work around that by adding in two-factor auth like, like anything, right? like an exchange or something like that. Just stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, what's your sort of upsum of where we stand in general in terms of this sort of the industry? Well, uh, where we stand. I think that I have, a, unfortunately, I have a somewhat pessimistic view because when I look back on the fact that it's almost 10 years, uh, I think that we should have made a lot more progress than we've made. And what actually happened is crazy because what actually happened is I think Satoshi invented a remarkable piece of technology that had enormous potential and people learned all of the wrong lessons and did all of the wrong things. Satoshi left in 2010 and didn't keep saying stuff. And so people went off in random directions and did random other stuff that are all the wrong things to be doing. So we went through an epic token mania where people made worthless token after worthless token that solved no problems. What they actually did was to create speculative tokens that were 100% scams, pump-and-dump schemes and pyramid schemes. I mean, they were completely without value, except that it was a new way to gamble, is what they really were. 
So that was the lesson that 90% of the industry learned. That is the wrong lesson. We should have applied this technology to solve real problems in the real world, like monetizing content or tracking things in the supply chain. There are countless uses of this technology that have not actually happened. So in many ways, especially when you consider Bitcoin SV, and again, I hate to be sad or pessimistic about it, but just looking at it, it's the reality. In many ways, we're back to square one because Bitcoin SV actually can be scalable technology that brings sound digital money to the entire world and can solve countless problems. I mean, from an adoption perspective, we're back to square one. Now, at least we've learned a lot along the way. We do, it's not like we have zero capital. We have money, we have intellectual capital, we, we do have users, it's not zero. But, but it, we have to like, actually ignore a lot of the noise in the industry. Almost all these tokens are just noise. They're distractions. They've, it's a misallocation of capital, if you're familiar with the, that idea from economics, where in like a bubble, people will see prices going up, and they just start investing in it because they think, oh, the price is going up. That means that's a signal that I should invest in it. But you can have manias where it's just everybody's investing in all the wrong things. And that's exactly what we saw last year, and we're seeing the bust. I mean, one thing that... I've been wondering about is that the whole idea of crypto is that it's a sort of system that once it's out there, it's out there and it kind of looks after itself without central regulators or whatever. Yes. And yet in the hash war, yes. it's been very much a personality thing. Yes. Personalities and leading personalities, including yourself, have been playing a major role in the way that the system has developed. Yes. Does that, to some extent, take away from the kind of the credibility of the original strength of crypto as an idea, would you say? I think it really depends on what happens next. So if crypto fails, that's how everyone will see it, that it didn't work as an idea. But if it succeeds, they're going to look at it very differently because they're going to look at this event as, ah, Bitcoin worked around all the problems and succeeded anyway. So it is true right now that you see these, these powerful figures that are Powerful within the industry, very small relative to the world at large, but within the industry are these powerful, influential figures. Um, I don't know that that will ever completely go away, but I do believe the system will become more and more robust with time if we're able to actually get adoption. So when this thing is actually at scale and is actually being widely used, you're not going to be able to just do a hash battle that destroys the economy because it's going to destroy the miners' economy that they rely on to function. So... Only in a situation where you've got these large entities that have a giant amount of capital and resources of various sorts outside of the system that they can do this. But when the system itself is much larger, it's not possible. So I think that we'll look back in hindsight. We're going to do everything we can to make this successful. We're going to look back in hindsight as a process of, uh, there's a term called hormesis, if you've ever heard of this. Hormesis is actually a biological principle that, it, that you would know if you go to the gym, you lift weights. What you do is you temporarily damage your body and you leave the gym. You're actually weaker. You actually can't lift as much weight again. You've actually damaged yourself. But if you eat well, sleep well, go back one or two days later, now you're stronger. You've got to recover and become stronger. This principle applies throughout biology. And it's true for your immune system. It's actually true for almost every subsystem of the human body, right? As well as almost every form of life. Um, I believe that applies to Bitcoin as well. So it's really, really bad in the near term. But it is such a powerful lesson 
that we'll become far stronger having lived through this, assuming we survive, right? If you go to the gym and kill yourself, you're not going to become stronger. But if you survive, you'll become stronger and you'll become much stronger. So that's how I look at this situation. So you just have to tough it out, survive the bear market, basically, and accept all the losses, but recognize that we're still alive and we have all this capital available to us that, okay, well, let's just learn from this and grow and we're going to be much stronger in the future. And so if we, if we come back here in 10 years' time, yeah. where do you think we'll be? 10 years is a very interesting time. So for 10 years into Bitcoin, where will we be in 10 years? Well, I will say that right now in the SV world, we are completely committed to maintaining the stability of the protocol, scaling the technology, and getting adoption. And we have all of the resources we need to take every step to actually execute on those things. I think 10 years from now, we're going to have really, really radical adoption. I think we're going to be at global scale. I don't know that everyone will be using it as money quite yet. But I do think that we're going to have giant applications with hundreds of millions of users. And all the applications people have been talking about as ideas for the past 10 years are going to be reality in the next 10 years. So things like the content payments that we're doing with Money Button, as well as the supply chain ideas, things like tracking things, things like tokens, uh, fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens, all, all these things will become reality for real businesses in the next 10 years. So that's where I see. I, I see we're going to go from the toy phase and the experiment phase and the learning phase into the reality phase of actually applying this technology for real problems and real businesses and real customers in the real world. Final question. Sure. What does X stand for? So X actually doesn't stand for anything. Uh, X is, my, my real name is Ryan Dickerber. My middle name is Charles. So when I switched my career from physics to Bitcoin, Dickerber is kind of a weird name. And I realized that it would just be easier if I went by Ryan Charles. And because there was some other famous person named Ryan Charles, I decided to add the letter X to make it unique so that I'm the only person in the world named Ryan X Charles. Brilliant. Ryan, thank you very much indeed. My thanks to Ryan X. Charles. Please join me, Charles X. Miller, next week when I'll be talking to one of the biggest online crypto retailers, Elizabeth White, and her colleague Edward Radjabli about how they're offering crypto on MasterCard and how they've sold so many Lamborghinis. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.